Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Good evening, everyone. Hey, welcome along to the Gospel of John, part four. Um, I really hope that last week um, you went home and over the next few days at least made your way through chapters seven, eight, and nine um, with that background of the Feast of Tabernacles. And hopefully that as you did that, some of what Jesus said maybe comes into a new degree of focus and and you have the background context for some of the things he said. Um, We commented last week that uh, in the Feast of Tabernacles there are two key features to the feast, the the water ceremony and the light ceremony. And chapter 7 focuses on the water ceremony and that key point in the feast where um, Jesus says, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink was set smack bang in the middle of the water ceremony. And then in chapter eight, when he says, I am the light of the world, if any man comes after me, won't be in darkness. That comes right uh, at the conclusion or uh, just at the conclusion of the the light ceremony. So what I did last week was kind of talked about seven, eight and nine in the the general sense of of, uh, with tabernacles as a background wallpaper. What I'd like to do now is go back to chapter seven and pick up some of the specifics of, of these chapters. According to Merrill Tenney, and I, I mentioned him in the very first session that we did, uh, the structure of John is broken up into a series of periods. So we have the period of consideration where Jesus presents himself for evaluation. That comes to an end and it moves into the period of conflict and, and controversy. And these chapters really are about the controversy and, and the conflict. Um, chapter 7 is the beginning of what Tenney calls the period of conflict. And it begins, uh, if you read it, with the rejection of Jesus by his, his brothers. It's the, it's, the brothers are going down to the feast and they say to Jesus in verses four and five of chapter seven, go where more people can see your miracles, they scoffed. You can't be famous when you hide like this. If you're so great, prove it to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. And in a way, the pattern of rejection after the period of evaluation is, is complete. He's rejected in his native Galilee in chapter four, verse 44, where he says a prophet has no honor in his own country. He's rejected in Judea in chapter seven, verse one. He didn't want to walk in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. He's rejected as a, uh, um, by, by the whole nation, as chapter one, verse 11 said he would be. He came to his own and his own received him not. And in this passage that we're looking at in chapter seven, even his own family, his own brothers, Uh, scoff and mock and and resist and and reject. After the brothers go down to the feast, in verse 10 it says, uh, Jesus actually follows them. Now we're moving relatively quickly through this, we could stop at a number of places, but in chapter, uh, in verse 10, Jesus goes to the feast after his brothers have well and truly gone. And we see in verses 11 and 12 that he is the topic of conversation and the masses are divided concerning him. His fame has spread far and wide, and it says some said, and then others said, and uh, and there's great division about the ministry of Jesus. 
The Jewish leaders are now actively hostile. We are introduced in verse one of chapter seven to the idea that they are, and the Greek reads, seeking to kill him. Not just on one occasion they sought to kill him, but the Greek is the continuous form, which means they are seeking to, ki to kill him. In spite of that, in verse 14, Jesus begins to teach in the temple. The people are amazed at his teaching, and even the authorities are stunned, and they ask the question, how does he know letters? How does he know letters? Who is this guy? Now that doesn't mean, how come he's literate? Okay, um, the, the reality is he, he knew his ABCs and most Jewish males did at that time because they were schooled in the synagogue schools. So this question, how does he know letters, isn't, you know, my goodness, he's literate, he knows his alphas from his omegas. That's not the point. The point is this man exhibits higher learning. Even today we still say of a person who's very gifted, um, they are a scholar, they are a man of, or woman of letters, all right? and by which we might say they've gone to Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard. And so when they are saying, how does this man know letters? They aren't saying, how is he literate? They are saying, where on earth has he got such knowledge? What rabbi has conferred such knowledge on him, such authority? At this time, the, the teaching of the rabbis worked in a, in a particular way. They, they worked backwards, quoting the rabbis before them as they went, hopefully reaching Moses, and then uh, from there maybe having some understanding of what God thought about a particular issue. And the Jewish sages often prided themselves on their unoriginality. They weren't trying to be novel. They were quoting the rabbis before them all the way back to Moses. Now, Jesus shocked them because he reversed the process. He didn't start with the rabbis and work backwards to the source. He started at the source and he didn't bother quoting the learned rabbis. In fact, often, to the contrary, he challenged the interpretation of the rabbis. And again and again, as you read the scriptures, you find Jesus saying something to the effect of, you have heard it said, but I say to you, what he's doing there is just moving the religious baggage, the interpretation of the rabbis aside, and he's allowing them to go directly to the source. He had, in fact, he says, sat under a teacher, and that teacher was his father. And he said, I have heard him, I've watched my father, I imitate him, I obey him. Verse 16, it says that Jesus says, the doctrine comes from the one who sent me. Jesus, as we've said before, moves under this incredible sense of divine compulsion. I must go through Samaria. He, he knew what he was called to do and be. He knew his timetable. My hour has not yet come. Again and again, he refers to the fact that he has been sent. Five times in this chapter, he says, I have been sent. Verse 18, verse 28, verse 29, verse 33. He is incredibly aware that he is on mission and he has been sent. Actually, he refers to having been sent in 17 of the 21 chapters of the Gospel of John. It's one of those themes that kind of runs through the Gospel. This is the one who has been sent from the Father to exegete the Father's heart. And then in verse 17, he says to them, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. 
Jesus indicates that those whose hearts are committed to God's purposes will actually recognize the authority. They'll recognize the fact that he, that he does speak for God. In fact, Donald Gray Barnhouse once translated this verse as, if any man determines to do his will, he will know. A fundamental condition, I think, for obtaining understanding is a genuine heart's desire to carry out the revealed will of God. We, we, we want to understand so that, we, so that we can obey. Augustine once commented, understanding is the reward of faith. Do not seek to understand in order to believe, but believe in order to understand. We, tr- we tend to try and reverse that order. Lord, you let me know what you want from me and then I'll consider it and, uh, and possibly commit to it. The Lord is actually asking us to commit to his purposes. Being a person of believing faith, we commit to his purposes and then we understand. So understanding actually results, in a sense, from faith. I, I this is, you can do what you like with this, but I sometimes suspect that God actually withholds understanding from us because he knows simply that we don't have a heart to obey. And perhaps withholding is an act of mercy on his part. Without, uh, with, with understanding comes responsibility. And if he knows that we do not have a heart to obey, to, to, to show us, to, to help us understand simply increases our culpability. Just a thought. Um, verses 19 through 24, okay? These verses show that the religious leaders weren't even obeying the revelation that they did have. They had Moses, and they often appealed to Moses, but they weren't obeying him as their plans and attempts to kill Jesus proved. So it's as if Jesus is saying, you want to understand my teaching. You're not even obeying the teaching that you do understand. If you want to do the will of God, you will understand. And people who are committed to following through on the will of God will have understanding. They respond um, vociferously. And in verse 20, they claim he's demonized. You, you have a demon. And that was a claim that they leveled at him a number of times. Chapter 8, verse 48 and 49, they said that. In chapter 10, verses 20 through 21, they say the same thing. The implications, by the way, of saying he's demonized was, um, were, were either um, he's insane and demonization in that culture was often seen as a source of madness, or he was a false prophet or a sorcerer uh, who associated, you know, the, the, the power associated with him was from demons. And they made that claim, of course. They didn't claim that he wasn't doing miracles. They often challenged the source of those miracles. They said it's from Beelzebub. He casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the demons. So this is this claim of he's he's absolutely um, demonized. He's either insane or he's in league with Satan or possibly, possibly both. The crowds, however, are watching this interaction and they are somewhat perplexed. Verse 25, they know that the religious rulers are planning to put Jesus to death, and yet here he is openly teaching in the temple, and they aren't, they aren't, they aren't arresting him. The question arises, why? And they say, have they changed their minds? Have they, have they found out that in fact he really is the Christ? Well, in verse 27, they dismiss that possibility immediately and they claim to know him and know where he comes from. And it was popularly believed at that time that the Messiah, when he came, would suddenly appear and no one would know where he came from. 
Jesus' response, as per the message translation, it says, that provoked Jesus, who was teaching in the temple, to cry out, yes, you think you know me and where I'm from, but that's not where I'm from. I didn't set myself up in business. My true origin is in the one who sent me, and you don't know him at all. I come from him. That's how I, that's how I know him. He sent me here. Well, the, the rulers just decide this is enough. This is enough, we gotta stop this. And uh, they send a deputation to arrest him. It's interesting, but the deputation is made up of the Pharisees and the chief priests. They got their heads together and decided we've got to stop this. And what we often don't realize is that the chief priests and the Pharisees were not exactly buddy-buddy. The chief priests were largely made up of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, of course, were a renewal movement. They were the conservatives, and they generally hated each other. It's interesting when a common enemy arises, how forces that would often be opposed to one another are, are joined together. In Psalm 83, the psalmist is complaining about a conspiracy on the, path, on, on the part of surrounding nations against Israel. And in verses five to eight, it says, this was their unanimous decision at their summit conference. They signed a treaty to ally themselves against Almighty God. These Ishmaelites and Edomites, Moabites and Hagrites, people from the lands of Gibal, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, Ty, Assyria, uh, has joined them too and is allied with the descendants of Lot. And in the margin of my Bible, I wrote, hatred is a very potent cement and the most discordant elements may be fused together in the fire of a common animosity. People who hate one another will join together if there's one they even hate more. And, and uh, D.A. Carson said, common enemies make strange bedfellows. At the end of Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 23, verse 12, you might remember the story of Pilate and Herod who had been bitter enemies became friends before they, uh, and, and before that they'd been enemies and they became friends over Jesus. You can, you can read that. So the deputation of chief priests and Sadducees uh, and Pharisees send this group of people to arrest Jesus. They return without him. Verse 46, they, they in fact have been arrested. And, and they say, never a man spoke like this. This is unheard of. And it's so authoritative that they just weren't, weren't able to, get, to go uh, on and arrest him. So I, I've mentioned this a number of times, but in these chapters from chapter five through six through seven, nobody ever, no religious leader ever has spoken the way Jesus has spoken. And the reason, when I said right at the beginning, you have to see what Jesus says and what he does through the lens of the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. This is not a human being come to teach about God. This is God come to teach. And it's not surprising that people are absolutely arrested by the things that he says. Of course, those who reject him say this is absolutely outrageous. And numerous times they take up stones to try and kill him because they say he's claiming equality with God. We've got to deal to this person. So then we come through to chapter eight and as you open up chapter eight, you've got the story of the woman taken in adultery. 
This is a story that very nearly didn't make its way into the Bible. And some of you will have a Bible where the story is in brackets or in italics, or possibly it's been placed in the margin, or in some cases, even at the end of the gospel. And the reason for that is the oldest manuscripts that we have of John's gospel don't have verses one and 11 in them. And actually the text flows very naturally if you read it from chapter seven, verse 52. Let me read this. Uh, 7.52, they answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And then you pick it up in 8 chapter 12, where, um, where then Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. So those, that, that actually flows very well together if you leave out the first 11 verses, the story of the woman taken in adultery. Now, most scholars that I've read anyway feel that the story is an authentic one for Jesus's ministry, from Jesus' ministry. So they're not saying this didn't happen. It has all the marks of a genuine incident and it fits, it fits the character of Jesus and of the Pharisees. Some people have taken it and said it belongs in Luke. Others have said, well, somebody who is editing John has popped it in here. John never meant it to be there, but, but there it is. Um, and, and you can go whichever way you like in the argument. I, I love what N.T. Wright says when he says that God has given us the book, the Bible, as he wanted us to have it. It doesn't really matter whether somebody has edited it and added it in. Um, you know, this is the book that God wanted us to have, and I feel very comfortable with that kind of approach. I think this is a genuine incident from the ministry of Jesus. Whether it belongs here or not is a moot point, and I don't think it really matters too much. Augustine suggested that it was omitted in the early church because uh, it was felt by some uh, religious leaders that it condoned, or at least at the very least was very light on adultery. Hearing Jesus say, neither do I condemn you was a bit more than some um, religious leaders could handle. Obviously they didn't read on where he said to the woman, go and sin no more. But perhaps it's easier to remove the story than try and balance justice and mercy. The church has never always been, has never been particularly good at that. Um, the story as it reads, and I presume you have read it, the woman taken in adultery, dragged before Jesus by the Pharisees and said this woman was caught in the very act. The law says, stoner, what do you say? Uh, it, it highlights the absolute hypocrisy of the religious leaders. It was a setup. Um, they couldn't have cared less about the morality of the situation. They certainly weren't on a, they weren't on a crusade to keep J Jerusalem sexually pure. They, they didn't come to Jesus with genuine questions that needed answers. Typical of religious legalism, they came at Jesus quoting scripture and using it like a club. And this poor woman was fish bait. She was nothing more than cannon fodder. There's no second party in this arraignment. There's no sign of a man being dragged before Jesus, just the woman. And they have devised a plan to put Jesus in a no-win situation. He's on the horns of a dilemma. It's like asking somebody, have you stopped beating your wife yet? And it doesn't matter what they answer, they're damned. And it's that kind of question. Moses' law said she should be stoned. And of course they're correct. They're quoting from Leviticus 21 verse 10, Deuteronomy 22 verse 22, both state that. If Jesus says, do what the law says, 
then immediately he would have alienated himself from the common people among whom he had gained a reputation for being a defender of the broken and the oppressed. If he said, don't stone her, then they had him as a lawbreaker, one who claims to come from God but clearly doesn't obey the law of God. You can almost hear the sneer smug of the Pharisees as they say, get yourself out of this one, carpenter. What are you gonna say? Now, you know the story. Jesus stooped down and began to write in the dust with his finger. They weren't gonna let him off the hook. And verse seven says, they kept demanding an answer. And he stands and gives one of the most famous, you know, quotations. Everybody knows this. He that is without sin among you, let him be the first one to cast a stone. And then he bends down and continues writing in the dust with his finger. I'm fascinated by the fact that there are three occasions in the scripture where God is said to write with his finger. The first is found in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, where it says, then as God finished speaking with Moses on the Mount Sinai, he gave him two tablets of stone on which the 10 commandments were written with the finger of God. So the 10 commandments are written on stone with the finger of God. That's the first occasion. The second is in Daniel chapter five, verse five at the feast of Belshazzar, where suddenly as they were drinking from the cups, they saw the fingers of a man's hand writing on the plaster of the wall opposite the lampstand. Many, many tickle you parson. The finger of God writing. And of course, the third occasion is when the Son of God bends down and starts writing in the dust with his finger. Now, we aren't told what Jesus wrote, and there are endless speculation. There's endless speculation on what it might have been. But perhaps he could have been writing as he did in Exodus 31, the Ten Commandments. The Greek word is katagraphian, which has the idea of writing a list. He knew that they were wanting to condemn this woman for breaking the seventh commandment, but he knew that they'd broken the sixth because they were planning to kill him. Thou shalt not murder. Perhaps he wrote, as Daniel did, mene, mene, tekel, you fasten. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. I don't know. Perhaps he had Jeremiah 17, 13 in mind, where it says, those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Who knows? Perhaps he was writing the names of those who had forsaken the Lord. Whatever he did, they were cut to the heart. And uh, he had said, you, you go ahead. Do what the Lord demands. Stoner, the first one to throw the stone needs to be sinless. Throw the first stone if you are qualified to do so. And he goes on writing. The qualification is he who is without sin. The qualification is sinlessness. And when we understand the qualification, we realize we're out of the stone, stone throwing business forever, aren't we? It's not our job. And the Bible says, starting with the oldest, which I find fascinating, they all left. Maybe the young and brash stayed on for a while, but the older ones figured, oh my Lord, I'm in no place to throw a stone. And slowly they departed. Perhaps the implication is the longer you live, the more mistakes you've made, the more aware you are of them. I know that's true of my, my life, at least anyway. Finally, only Jesus and the woman are left standing. He stood there alone, the only one qualified to throw the first stone, and the question is, will he do it? And he says to a woman, again, um, it sounds kind of rude, 
Um, but that's the same term that he used when, when Mary asked him to turn the water into wine. And I suggested to you that day, it's not a rude word. It's not woman, you know, in the way that we might use it in the Western context. It, it might be translated better, my dear lady or ma'am. He didn't call her what others might have, whore, hooker, harlot, or some other term. He uses a term of dignity and, and, and restoration, and he, and he speaks tenderness where other, others had offered only exploitation and rejection. The one who rightfully could have carried out the sentence chose not to do so, but he did say to her, go and sin no more. He wasn't saying the law doesn't matter, he wasn't sweeping her sin under the carpet. He didn't condemn her because in a few short months he would be condemned for her. He could maintain righteousness and yet minister mercy. As John 1 tells us in the prologue, he was full of grace and truth. And again, you know, I say to you, the incredible challenge for the church is to learn how to balance those two things because we tend to go one extreme or the other. We tend to go to truth without mercy or mercy without truth. Jesus ministered both, and this is a brilliant illustration of it. You know what? Um, I, I suspect one of the reasons that it is so difficult for us to discern the line between acceptance and approval um, is the whole idea of if you accept somebody, you have to, without reservation, accept the way they live. And our society makes it like this, you know, love me, love my lifestyle. And you can't say, I respect you, but I don't respect the way you live. Uh, our culture has made it incredibly difficult. Um, but Jesus did that. He showed respect for the Samaritan woman without approving of her moral failures. He ate with Zacchaeus without approving of his greed. He public de publicly defends this woman without minimizing her sin. I think you know, for us in our culture where tolerance demands the acceptance of ideas as being equal, we've got to walk incredibly wisely. I've, I've said this before, but people are equal, ideas are not. Have you ever had a stupid idea? Anybody? Yeah, ideas aren't equal. People are equal and can be respected. Ideas are not necessarily equal and, and um, in our society, at least in the West, we've always had uh, at least the idea of being tolerant of people. You know, I, I don't agree with you, but I will defend to the death your ability to state your opinion. More and more in our society, at least in our present day, you can't do that. And for us as a church, I think um, truly uh, we need the wisdom of Solomon and how we balance mercy and grace. The story, as I said, really highlights the differences between Jesus and the religious leaders. He's light, they are darkness. He's grace, they are death-dealing legalists. He is true, they are hypocrites. He's kind and gentle, they are cruel, self-serving bullies. So that's verses one through 11, and it kind of is in this odd place, in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, um, we then come to verse 12, and we're back in the Feast of Tabernacles with this incident sort of behind us. Again, uh, remember the light ceremony, and verse 12 um, begins with Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. One thing that you need to know is uh, there, were, there are liturgies that, 
that um, the Jews had concerning these seasons. So they would read specific passages of scripture, like I said last week, and they would pray specific prayers. One of the prescribed prayers for this occasion was, O Lord of the universe, thou commanded us as to, uh, as to light the lamps to thee, yet thou art the light of the world. That was one of the prayers they prayed. And then in verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And again, you've got to, when you read that against the background wallpaper of tabernacles and the liturgy and the prayers, you see the power of what he's actually claiming. It recalls the statement in the prologue. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to testify concerning the light that through him all men might believe. He himself, John, was not the light. He came to be a witness of the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So that idea is in the prologue. You see it unfolding through John. And here Jesus claims to be that light. It also recalls and harkens back to the servant of Isaiah, whose mission to the nations as outlined in Isaiah 42 verse 6 was, I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles. That's said again of the servant in chapter 49 and verse six. So, so, you know, when I said to you before, Jesus is the true light. In John, he is the true vine. The true vine speaks of the true identity of Israel. The true light speaks of the true mission of Israel. And they both find their focal point in Jesus, the true Israelite, the, the faithful one, the one that God had been looking for. So he says, I am the light of the world. That's the second great I am statement. The first was I am the bread of life. That's with the predicate at least anyway. Apparently the Greek really emphasizes uh, the I. It is I and nobody else. Not I am a light, but I am the light. I and nobody else. Again, the audaciousness of these claims. And then he says, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. According to the scholars, the Greek tenses read a bit like this. The one who is following me shall by no means walk in or more literally spend time with the darkness. Just as we have the light, we have the darkness. The light is personified. It is not just some philosophical abstraction. It is a person. And the darkness is not a philosophical abstraction either. It is a person. Both of those two things are personified. Given the Greek words and tenses, this, this sentence could literally read like this. He that is following me will make right choices and decisions at points where he could spend time in the darkness instead of the light that I am giving him. Which is really thought-provoking. You know, this, star, this statement of Jesus, I am the light of the world, and he that is following me will not walk in darkness, starts this extended discussion that extends through chapter eight between Jesus and his antagonists. The Pharisees respond in verse 15, and I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing here, but <clears throat> they say to him, listen, people can say whatever they like. It doesn't make it true. You say you're the son of God and the light of the world. I'm Caesar Augustus, and he's a poached egg. Just because you say it, it doesn't make it true. People who make claims like this on the basis of their own authority can be dismissed. We don't accept your authority. So Jesus asserts in verses 14 through 18 that his witness is true. And again, paraphrased, 
Your law says that testimony given on my own behalf isn't valid. We talked about that last week in chapter five, verse 31. You could not testify on your own behalf and it be regarded as admissible in a case from which you might benefit. He says, so although your law says my testimony isn't valid, nevertheless, even though I am testifying on my own behalf, what I say is true. I know where I have come from, my unique origin and destiny. You are making pronouncements about me, but you are ignorant of the facts and your judgments are made according to the flesh. That's how Jesus responds to them. I think this idea of you are judging according to the flesh might in this instance at least be a little more sinister than simply saying you are judging by outward appearances. He warned them not to do that in chapter seven, verse 24. Don't simply judge by outward appearances. Here he's saying you are judging according to the flesh. And I think here the flesh can indicate the fallen nature of man without the compelling influence of the Holy Spirit. And the flesh is worthless for true evaluation, lacking the discernment of the Spirit. He's saying your judgments are clouded by your fallen desires and your ungodly ambitions. They aren't just observing something outwardly. What they are doing is passing what they see through the filter of their own wicked hearts. And And Jesus is saying, it's no wonder you can't see clearly. Jesus says, I have got witnesses for the truth of what I'm saying. Remember last week in chapter five, he'd listed some witnesses concerning his own testimony, his own credibility rather. He said, my own testimony, although you will not regard it as valid and inadmissible in this case, I'm telling you what I'm saying is true. I know where I've come from. Secondly, John the Baptist, you were willing to rejoice in his light for a season, but he testified of me. The works that I do, for goodness sake, If you don't believe what I'm saying, at least look at the works that I'm doing. Do they not look like the works that God would do? The dead are raised, the lepers are cleansed, the sick are healed, the blind see, the lame walk. And then he says, and the Father has testified concerning me. And then finally he said, the scriptures that you search so diligently, they speak of me. You refer to Moses, but Moses wrote of me. Here again, that was chapter, all that's chapter five. Here again, he appeals to the corroborating witness of his father. He said, my father testifies concerning me. Well, they, they respond in verse 19 with, where is your father? They are mocking him. They are, the, they are saying the same thing that some people say. Well, if you believe in God, get him to show up. Get him to show up right now. Get him to strike me dead. You know, you've heard those sort of things said. Show us the Father. You show us this Father of yours and we'll be satisfied. They ask in hostility the same question that Philip will later ask in friendship. Jesus, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus said to Philip, you remember it's in John chapter 14, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I've come to do an exegesis of his heart. I'm in the bosom of the Father, I rightly represent him. If you have seen me, Philip, you have seen the Father. Jesus says exactly the same thing to the Pharisees. To the Pharisees he said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father. They're asking in hostility, Philip asked in friendship, the answer is the same. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Verses 21 through 30 of that chapter are basically a warning to the Pharisees concerning the consequences of the stance that they are taking. 
their attitudes towards him. And three times in those verses, he says, you will die in your sins. Verse 21, verse 23, verse 24. And in verse 24, it says, if you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. If you've got a dear old King James, you'll notice the word he is in italics. It's been supplied by the translator. And what Jesus said was, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. They, you know, remember in, in Exodus, you know, Moses says, who shall, who shall I say sent me? Just, I am that I am. Anihu. In the Greek, ego eme. And here's Jesus in the context of this feast where all of those scriptures are being read. He says, if you do not believe that I am, anihu, ego eme, you will die in your sins. Verse 25, they say, who are you? This is not a genuine inquiry. It's not even a question. It's an exclamation of rage and unbelief. It's more like, who do you think you are? With probably a few expletives tossed in. But Jesus does treat it as a question. And he says, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. Interesting wording, from the beginning. In the beginning was the word. The word was God, the word was with God. A lot of scholars recommend that this be translated, the one who is at the beginning is the one speaking to you. Then Jesus says to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Again, the translators put in he, but it's not there. He says, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. And I said to you last week or the week before, the lifting up through John is always a reference to the cross. When the Son of Man is lifted up like the serpent on the pole, remember John chapter three? When the Son of Man is lifted up, you will know. When you've lifted me up, you will know. There is no other way of knowing. There is no other way for the opening of the eyes of the spiritually blind than the way I go, the lifting up of the cross. It seems that the cross will open people's eyes ultimately one way or another, either in mercy or in condemnation. We will either look and be saved, bowing the knee, willingly acknowledging that he is Lord, or perhaps as Zechariah 12 indicates, there will be those who look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn as one mourns for his only son. The cross will be the dividing line. Philippians says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. When he is lifted up, you will come to know that he is Anihu. He is ego emi. He is I am. Verse 30, it says that as he spoke these words, many believed on him. Jesus then turns to these people who believe and he addresses himself to those who have believed and he gives them clear instructions as to uh, what discipleship might mean. He says to them, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. You need to abide. And the result of abiding is that ultimately freedom will start to be manifest in you. You know, Jesus requires perseverance for discipleship. I think I mentioned early in the piece, remember, there were many who believed on him during the festivities, but Jesus didn't believe in them. But there was a man named Nicodemus. He did believe in him. 
He committed himself to Nicodemus. He didn't commit himself to the people who believed in kind of a shallow, evanescent way during the festivities. And here he's saying, if you want to be a disciple, it requires festivity, it, it requires perseverance. Those who listen and believe in the festivities hadn't, hadn't stayed the course. Remember in John chapter six, when he started to speak some hard words, they said, oh, who can handle this stuff? We're going home. And it says they abandoned him decisively. We'll come across this word abide again in a famous passage in John 15, and when, we're talk, when it talks about he is the vine, we are the branches, if we abide in him. The, the idea means to remain, to adhere, to stay in a given place. We make that commitment and we dig our toes in and, and we stay even during the hard times. The New English Bible has, you need to dwell within the revelation that I have brought. Abide in me. Dwell in the revelation that I have given you. You compare that commitment of the disciples to abide with what Jesus now says to the religious leaders in verse 37. My word has no place in you. To these people, he says, if you want to be my disciples, abide in the revelation that I've given you. These people don't. There's no place uh, for, uh, uh, you know, they've given no place in their hearts to my word. Moffat translation says, my, my word makes no headway among you, as he's speaking to the Pharisees. The Weymouth has, my truth go, gains no grounds. In a disciple, the word does make headway. It does gain ground. We, we expose ourselves to the word and the word changes us. It gains ground as we are progressively brought into the freedom that he purchased for us on the cross. And Jesus says the famous words, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. Later on, of course, we have Pilate's famous words when Jesus said, you know, if any man loves the truth, he'll know. And Pilate says, what is truth? And I guess you ask the question, you know, well, what is it? And how does it set people free? Well, throughout John's gospel, the answer is always made clear. The truth isn't some a abstract principle. It, it, it's, it's him. It, it's personal, full of grace and truth. I am the way, the truth. Not just I speak the truth, but I, but I am truth. Truth is not primarily some philosophical proposition. It's personal. And as we progressively know him, we experience freedom. You will, you will know the truth. The, the word know occurs, it's a, it's a regular word in John. It occurs 56 times in John's gospel, and it usually implies knowledge gained by or from experience. It's a word of great intimacy, and it's actually sometimes used to describe the intimacy of a husband and a wife. When Mary says to the angel Gabriel, how, how can I possibly be pregnant? I, I have not known a man. This is, that's the word. He said, with the increasing intimacy that develops in a disciple, where the word is making headway, knowing that truth, having that person revealed to you will progressively make you free. The NIV says, set you free. Make you free, set you free. One is an event, the other is a process, and we need both. You can set a slave free in a moment. Take his, take his chains off, and he is set free in a moment. But you, you know the story. You often have to teach that person to live as a free man. 
He's been so used to incarceration and so used to slavery that freedom is such a foreign concept that he doesn't know what to do with it. One of my favorite movies is uh, Shawshank Redemption. I'm sure many of you have seen it. But there is a moment in that movie where a prisoner who has been incarcerated for over 30 years was released. And, and we follow him briefly as he works in a supermarket. And, and, and he, he just he didn't know how to handle freedom. And on one occasion, he asks his supervisor if he can go to the bathroom. And the supervisor kind of mocks him and says, you don't, you don't have to ask that now. You're not in prison. Ultimately, the, the, the freedom was so overwhelming for that man that he went home and took his life. He, he just he could not cope with freedom. You can set a person free, but you also have to make them free. And the Word of God does that. Jesus can set you free in an instant, but, but he also wants to make a freedom that is long-lasting. Abide in my words. Stay in the truth. Let the Word make headway in you, and you shall both be set and made free. Then it says in verse 33, they answered him. Now, he's been speaking to the people that are following him about discipleship, perseverance, letting the word make headway. When it says they answered him, it's not the disciples. This is the religious leaders interrupting again. They're a party to what's going on. They've been here all the time. They answer him and they say, we are Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. Now, considered politically, that claim is absurd. I mean, Israel had endured slavery in Egypt, in Babylon, and presently they were under the heel of the Romans. So the thought that they are saying, we've never been in slavery to any other nation, I don't think is what they're saying. Uh, if Jesus had taken them literally, and pointed out the numerous times that they had endured captivity in Egypt and Babylon and now under the Romans, I'm sure they would have responded, oh, we're not talking about that, that's outwardly. Inwardly we have been subdued and broken by none. His response, and I'm essentially paraphrasing verse 34, is outwardly you have been subdued by many powers, inwardly only by one, sin. You are totally enslaved by the power of sin. Jesus acknowledges their physical descent, their genetic descent from Abraham, but he tells them in no uncertain terms that physical descent means nothing. But in actual fact, their behavior reveals their, their true spiritual paternity. This was something that Paul was later to speak about very clearly. In Romans chapter nine, verse six and seven, he says, not everyone born into a Jewish family is truly a Jew. Just the fact that they came from Abraham does not make them truly Abraham's children. He picks up on what Jesus is saying here. Spiritual paternity is not necessarily physical genetics. And Jesus says to them, if you were truly Abraham's children, you would act like him. You're trying to kill me. Abraham would never have done that. You are, in fact, acting like your father. Their scornful reply is, we're not born out of wedlock. Our father is God himself. And without doubt, I think they are alluding to the irregularities that they have discovered surrounding Jesus' birth. We aren't born out of wedlock. 
Mary was pregnant, of course, before her and Joseph came together. Essentially what they are saying is with respect to our parentage, there's no doubt, but it is very different for you. Jesus, he just doesn't give up, man, you know, he just keeps on pushing the buttons. And in verses 42 through 47, he essentially challenges them and says, where's the fruit concerning your claim to be legitimate sons of Abraham? Where's the fruit? You can tell a tree by its fruit. Where's yours? Fruit is always an indication of the root. The child always reflects the father. You are not a reflection of, the, of Abraham as you claim to be descendant from him. Two inconsistent things stand out. You have murderous intentions toward me and you have despised and rejected the truth. Abraham would never have done those things. Now, Obviously, when Jesus says, you are not hearing the truth, he's not speaking about their physical capacity to hear, but their prejudice, their prejudice, their jealousy, their antagonism has made the word that Christ has spoken to them inaudible, even though the syllables fell on their ears. They heard the words, but it didn't make headway in their heart. And then Jesus comes with a coup de grace. He says, you do resemble your father. You just don't actually know who your father is. In verse 44, your father is the devil. He's a murderer from the beginning and a liar and the father of lies. You can almost hear them gasping, can't you? They'd be apoplectic with rage. How dare he suggest this? One scholar translates that he is the father of the lie. Not just he's the father of lies, but he is the father of the lie. Not just lies in particular, although that's true as well, but he is the father of one particular lie. And it's really interesting that in John's epistle, much later on, 1 John 2, verse 22, J.B. Phillips says, and what I ask is the crowning lie to deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God in the flesh. The crowning lie. It's the ultimate lie. All other lies might serve his purpose, but this is the crowning lie. This is the lie that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that he's not the Christ, he's not the Messiah. And they, you know, as I say, they're apoplectic with rage. You Samaritan. It's about, you know, they're almost searching for, what can I say that will hurt him the most? You foreign, you foreigner, you, you devil, the Jewish leaders snarled. Didn't we say all along that you are possessed by a demon? Verse 48. Jesus, with just such a serene calmness, rejects their response, and instead of thinking, Whoop, whoops, I might have pushed them a little too far this time, he goes for the jugular. Verse 51, very truly, verily, very, truly, truly, most assuredly, listen, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. That's confusing to a lot of people because we know followers of Jesus die. So what did Jesus mean? Well, remember, he's talking bios, zoe, Natural life, the life that I give, so a eternal life. Yes, of course, bios will come to an end, but what he's saying is the life I give, so a will never come to an end. As always, they can only see the material, the literal, you know, the crass materialists, and, and they say, who on earth do you think you are? Abraham and the prophets all suffered death. Do you think you're greater than them? They're greater than Father Abraham? Now Jesus has one more card to play in this debate. 
And if, as I say, if they've been struggling up to this point, this sends them over the cliff into apoplectic shock. Verse 56, famous. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. <laughs> they say, you're not even 50 years old. You, ha you have seen Abraham? Verse 58, truly, truly. Most assuredly, amen, amen. You put in what you like. I say to you, before Abraham came into existence, I existed. That's how it goes in the Greek. Before Abraham was, ego imi. Before Abraham was, anihu. There was never a time when the sun was not. Abraham came into existence. He saw my day and he was glad. And you are not the children of Abraham. Your father is the devil. And he sold you the crowning lie. And since my word has made no headway in you, you've bought it. They understood exactly what he was claiming and their response was um, predictable. They picked up stones because that's what you do to blasphemers. You stone them. And verse 59 says, they picked up stones to throw at him. Ironically, chapter eight begins with a woman that they wanted stoned, and it finishes with them wanting to stone Jesus. Okay, chapter nine. Set of interesting contrasts between chapter eight and chapter nine. In John eight, Jesus, the light of the world, is despised and rejected by the religious leaders. In John chapter nine, he's received and worshiped by a man healed of blindness. In John chapter eight, the religious leaders bow the knee in order to pick up stones to throw at Jesus. In John chapter nine, the healed man bends down to worship. In John chapter eight, at the very end of the chapter, Jesus hides himself from the Jews. When they were about to stone him, it says he hid himself and just went out. In John chapter nine, he reveals himself to a blind man. In John chapter eight, we have people in whom the word makes no headway, in John chapter nine, we have a blind man who responds very quickly to Jesus' words. In John chapter eight, Jesus is inside the temple and is accused of having a demon and being crazy. In John chapter nine, Jesus is outside the temple and is owned as Lord. Some differences between them. The whole of chapter nine centers around Jesus' healing of a blind man and the reaction that it provokes. This is the only recorded case of Jesus healing a congenital disease, a disease or deformity that has been present from birth. There may well have, of course, been many others, but this is the only time it is actually recorded. Now, the man's blindness raises some theological questions for uh, Jesus' disciples. The unfortunate man becomes the subject of a theological analysis and, and case study. And they talk about this person with disability, um, not to him. They talk about him in his presence, but they aren't talking to him. And people with disabilities will say they're often treated like this, as if they can't hear, can't understand, don't know what's going on. It's humiliating. It's humiliating for this man, and it simply adds insult to injury. As the disciples ask Jesus in his presence, who sinned? 
Him or his parents that he's blind like this? And the disciples assume, as many did in that day, that there's a type, cause, and effect relationship between sin and suffering. And that can be traced back right, right back to one of the earliest books in the Bible, if not the earliest book in the Bible, the book of Job. Because that's what Job's friends said to him. There's a, there's a relationship between sin and suffering. If you've suffered, you've sinned. Now come on, fess up. And Job is saying, but I haven't. And God knows I haven't. And the whole of the book of Job is built around that whole idea. Perhaps their idea that sin and suffering are linked was strengthened when Jesus did talk to the lame man in John chapter 5, when he healed him and said to him, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And in that instance, Jesus did seem to link something in this man's background with the uh, infirmity that he's suffering. And, and I, I think, you know, people are very quick to latch on to a formula. Um, such ideas are still very prevalent in our world. Um, I'm sure you're aware of the belief that's held within broad Hindu tradition that there is an unstoppable chain of cause and effect running from a person's previous lives into the present one. It's called karma. You know, you, you get what you deserve. And if you're going through a bad time, then you've deserved it from another lifetime. Some of you who are football fans, soccer fans, may remember that some years ago, an English coach by the name of Glenn Hoddle was dismissed from his position for suggesting that some people with disabilities were being punished for sins in a previous life. And even Christians. I mean, if you travel in the third world and places, there's a strong idea that if you're sick, you've sinned. Jesus clearly rejects that idea as some kind of fail-safe principle or formula. And he says, neither, neither this man nor his parents in verse three have sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now, I don't know how you think about that, but that can be somewhat problematic, that statement. Neither this man nor his parents, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. It sounds, as you read it, a little like Jesus is saying, he's been blind all this time so that I could come along at this divinely ordained moment and display my glory by healing him. The implication of that is that the blindness has been sovereignly ordained so that Jesus can display his power. And I'm not sure how that strikes you. But it isn't an idea that sits well with me. I, I want to ask the question, does that sound like the father that Jesus has been revealing and exegeting up to this point? Letting a man suffer for many, many years in order that at the right moment he can be a display case. I'm sorry if I should be impressed by that idea, but I'm not particularly. My sympathies are with the blind man. G. Campbell Morgan, one of the great scholars of the 20th century, said that there should be, uh, that states that there should not be a comma after the word sinned, but a full stop. Let me read it again. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, full stop. But that the, words of God, the works of God should be revealed in him. And what he's saying by that is, he suggests that changes the emphasis of the idea. The idea is not that God sovereignly ordered the man's blindness so that Jesus could come along and heal him and display his glory. It's not a sovereignly ordered event, but it does provide a sovereign opportunity. The suffering is the occasion, but not the appointed preparation for the miracle. God didn't plan the man's blindness in a fallen world 
bad things happen. It's the nature of the fallenness of our world. And God works in the midst of the brokenness and the darkness and he brings hope and light wherever there is the opportunity. Not sovereignly ordered, but a sovereign opportunity. Now I know that probably messes with people who are of a reformed faith who believe that every single thing is ordered by God. Clearly, if you've hung around Gateway for any length of time, you'll know that I'm not reformed in that sense. I'm sorry. I, I cannot go there. To me, that doesn't create a loving God. It creates a demon. But every man to his own. Verse six, Jesus spat on the ground and made clay and then applied it to the, band, the blind man's eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he went, washed, and he came back seeing. Why the spittle? I don't know. Uh, nobody else does either, really, except for the fact that spittle was regarded as being remedial and having some healing properties. Whether Jesus was accommodating himself and his methods for the sake of those around him, we simply don't know. Possibly it recalls, it, 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 possibly it's an, an allusion to the creative act of Genesis 2-7. We're out of the clay. I've made man. And here's a man who hasn't got eyes or they're not functioning in that since his birth and here's the creator God forming and fashioning I, I, I don't know, supposition problem now it was the Sabbath when Jesus made clay and opened his eyes you can see the red flags waving as a point of background one of the 1521 commandments and prohibitions of the oral law that had developed fence like around the Sabbath was that you couldn't make any ointment on the Sabbath And the Pharisees saw quickly that what Jesus had done with the spittle and the clay was equivalent to making ointment and he had violated the Sabbath. Oh my goodness. The way Jesus approaches holiness and the way the Pharisees approach holiness remind me of stories from Greek mythology. You may have heard of these stories, but Ulysses was a great Greek hero and on one occasion Ulysses and his men had to sail by an island that, were, that, were, that was inhabited by demonic cannibals. At the approach of a vessel, these demonic creatures would turn themselves into beautiful women, sirens, who would seduce the sailors with the beauty of their songs. They would lure them onto the rocks and, and to their destruction. Ulysses knew this and what he did was he put wax in the men's ears and then he got them to tie him to um, the, the mast of the ship with the instruction that he, they ignore all his cries. Whatever he screams, don't take any notice. He really did want to hear the song but he knew that if he heard it he'd be in big trouble. Anyway, his men tied him to the, the mast and they had wax in their ears. They managed to get by. That kind of reminds me of the pharisaical approach to holiness. It's, it's about prohibitions. It's about don't do's. 1,521 don't do's. And, and Jesus doesn't come at holiness like that. Jason was another Greek hero. He passed the same island. On his approach, um, he resisted the seductive song of the sirens by hiring a professional flute player. And when the sirens began to sing their song, he got the flute player to play even a more beautiful song. 
And holiness is not the dreary resisting of sin. Don't do, don't do that, don't do this. You can't do that. It is the, the joy of holiness is in having heard a sweeter song. All right? And the church has majored in the don't do's. We've tied people down, we've put wax in their ears, we've said don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. The joy of holiness is having a sweeter song sung to us where it's not about what I, I'm not allowed to do, but it's the longing to follow the sweeter song. And the Pharisees are much, much more like Ulysses and Jesus is much, much more like J- Jason in terms of the way they come at what makes holiness, at what makes people whole. The Pharisees tied people up with prohibitions. Jesus sang a sweeter song. So he heals the blind man, it's the Sabbath, um, the blind men's neighbors see him. And, and verses eight through 13 of the chapter are about their response to seeing the miracle. First of all, there's unbelief. That's not him, is that him? No, that can't be him. That guy can see, he's blind, that's him. And you can see the dialogue going on. They, they are amazed and in their amazement, they bring him to the Pharisees. Now, this may or may not have been motivated by malice and unkindness. I talked about the, um, you know, the, the man in John chapter five who got healed and he went off and snitched on Jesus. And it does seem that that was motivated by malice. It's hard to tell here whether it's malice or whether it, maybe ceremonial factors were involved as in like the cleansing of the lepers. Perhaps there was something that they had to do to verify the miracle. Maybe they just wanted to say, look what happened. And they take him before the religious leaders thinking that they will be as excited as obviously these people are. The miracle of the man's sight being restored to the man was completely lost on these Pharisees, which begins to show you how hard, resistant, and actually just straight out wicked a religious heart without grace can be. Because they don't see the unbelievable miracle that's taken place. The fact that this man had never looked on the face of his parents never seen the shimmering of the sun on the surface of the Lake of Galilee, had never seen birds flying overhead, had never seen the stars on a cloudless night and was now seeing, was completely lost on them. All that mattered to them was religious rules have been broken. It's downhill from there. Look at the progression, verse 16. This man is not from God, verse 24. This man is a sinner. Verse 29, we don't know where he's from. In other words, we've got nothing to do with him. If he was worth anything, we would know about it. We are the only show in town. By contrast, as the Pharisees are heading south, the man who's been healed is a bit like the woman at Samaria. First of all, in verse 11, he says he's a man called Jesus. In verse 17, he says he's a prophet. In verse 33, he's a man from God. And in verse 35 and 38, he's the son of God. He is Lord. It's the the theme of John. Belief, unbelief. Acceptance, rejection. Pharisees are desperate to discredit and disqualify the miracle that has transpired. So they drag the man's parents into court and interrogate them. Uh, You can read about that. Verse 22, they are evasive. They do not want to be excluded from the community. They know that if they say the wrong thing, they will be kicked out of the community because 
it says the Pharisees had determined that anybody who believed in Jesus was gonna be what we would say excommunicated. You gotta understand, in a setting like this, this is much more than saying, you're not allowed to come to our church. The synagogue is the center of community life. And when you are, as the Greek reads literally, unsynagogued, it's not just you can't go to church on Sabbath, you are cut off, you are outside community life. When you think about that, I, I am amazed at the, the courageous faith of this man. You see, by virtue of his blindness, he had been marginalized from all of community life up to this point. Now he must be thinking, I can be immersed in community life. Everything that's been taken from me, I can have back. All I have to do is side with the Pharisees. But if I don't side with the Pharisees, my marginalization will continue and I will still be cut off. That must have been an incredible temptation for him. He speaks the truth. He sticks with the truth even though he will be marginalized all over again. The, the parents are evasive. They're not going to be kicked out. Well, we know he's our son. How he got here, we haven't got a clue. Ask him. So they bring him back in. They interrogate him for the second time in verses 24 through 34. And in verse 24, they say, give glory to God. The idea here is give glory to God by confessing your fault. In, in Joshua chapter 7, verse 19, remember Achan took the gold uh, and, and, uh, from, from Jericho when he shouldn't have. And, and Joshua says to him, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make a confession unto him. Same thing. Give glory to God. They aren't saying, give glory to God and tell us about your healing. They are saying, give glory to God and confess your fault in following this blasphemer, this deceiver. They want him to admit that he's following a false leader. This guy is really feisty. I really like him. He proves much, much more courageous than his parents. And you know what? The Pharisees have an argument. The blind man has an experience. There's an old saying that says a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. I once was blind, but now I see. And I'm sorry, you can say all you like about Richard Dawkins and the God delusion. I have an experience of God's mercy and grace in my life. And, and he answered them when they start questioning him again. He says to them, I've told you already. You d didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples? It's almost like the cynicism or the scorn and they fire back. We are Moses' disciples. Ironically, that's refuted by the rest of the Gospel of John, by the way. As Jesus said to them, Moses, in whom you put so much stock, is actually your accuser. If you believed, really believed what Moses had said, you would believe in me because he wrote of me. You are not Moses' followers in the same way that you are not Abraham's children in spite what you claim. Verse 30 and verse 33, the man answered and said to them, why this is a marvelous thing, talk about tongue in cheek and a bit of sarcasm, that you do not know where he's from and yet he's opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it is unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The, the Pharisees respond by unsynagoguing him, literally in the Greek. They throw him out of the community. They eject him from the community, cutting him off from the religious and social life 
of Israel. This callous act of men who are supposed to be Israel's shepherds, by the way, forms the background for Jesus' words in chapter 10 where he starts talking about true shepherds and hirelings. This is the context that flows into that. These men are proving to be false shepherds and in a few short moments, Jesus is gonna say, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. The hirelings don't do that. So when you go away tonight, read chapter 10 in the light of what you have just read in chapter nine. This man, a good man, a courageous man, is unsynagogued because he doesn't go along with their ideas of Jesus. The Pharisees excommunicate the man, Jesus excommunicates them. The religious leaders cast him out, Jesus invites him in. In verse 35, Jesus found him. That's what shepherds do. Remember Luke chapter 15, verse four, the shepherd goes out after that which is lost until he finds it. The good shepherd finds the sheep that's lost. And having healed his physical blindness, Jesus now gives him spiritual sight as well. And in verse 38, he says these incredible words. Then he said, Lord, I believed, and he worshiped him. And again, if you want proof for Jesus' deity, it is the fact that he doesn't stop people worshiping him. You know, in the book of Revelation, John is so overcome by an angel, he falls down to worship him, and the angel goes, no, 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 don't do that. You know, I'm a fellow servant, stand up, stand up. Jesus never says, oh, no, no, don't, 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 don't ever do that. You know, you, we only worship Yahweh. When people fell down to worship him with some degree of regularity, he never, ever turned them away and said, don't do that. He accepted their worship. C.S. Lewis once said, people who claim that Jesus never, never ever claimed to be God can look up into a cloudless sky on a summer's day and not see the sun. You cannot possibly read the Gospels, and in particular, you cannot read John without seeing he claimed to be God in the flesh. Um, a, a lot of people, um, Muslims particularly, will say, Jesus never ever claimed to be God. You show me where he claimed to be God. I mean, you, I'm sorry, but you cannot read John's gospel without seeing it on every page. And again, I, unapologetically, uh, I say to you, you have to read John through the lens of the prologue. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has come to declare the Father, to exegete his heart because in the beginning he was with the Father. He was God. He was with the Father. He is God. And everything that he does are the works of God and the words of God. Jesus is the light of the world and he gives light to this man. And in verse 39 to 41, as we draw to an end, we see the double effect that light has. What light does is it causes some to see and some to go blind. So well, how does that work, Don? Well, think about this. Think of the headlights of a car. If you're traveling in the same direction of the car, the headlights illumine your way. If you're traveling in the opposite direction, they can temporarily blind you. Jesus is the light of the world, and whether you are illumined or blinded depends on the direction in which you are traveling. Those traveling with Jesus were progressively enlightened. The word made headway in them. They got set free. They were made progressively free. They began to see. The darkness became light. 
Those who postured themselves against him were increasingly blinded. And then Jesus says these strange words. Um, He says in verse 39, for judgment I have come into this world. And you want to say, what? Hang on, stop, stop, stop. That seems like a contradiction to what he said in John 3.17. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. And here it says, for judgment I have come into the world. Well, I mean, which is it? Did he come to bring judgment or not? And in one sense, I'd want to say Jesus did not obviously come to judge, but to save. But in that coming and saving, it's inevitable that when light comes into the world, it exposes things. It exposes human sinfulness for all that it is. And when people love the darkness rather than the light, they are judged. It's not his intention. He came to save. In John chapter 12, it says, if anyone hears me and doesn't obey me, I'm not his judge, for I've come to save the world, not to judge it. But all who reject me and my message will be judged at the day of judgment by the truths I have spoken. It's not my purpose. I have not come in the world, into the world condemned. But the, real, the reality is when people resist the word and do not allow it to make headway in their life, that word will become a judgment against them. And judgment is the inevitable result. So the Pharisees are sticking to their preconceived ideas at the expense of the evidence that is clearly before them. Not only are they wrong, but they've constructed a system within which they will never see that they're wrong. You know, it's one thing to be genuinely mistaken and yet to be open to new evidence, new arguments and new insights. It's another thing completely to create a closed world like a sealed room in which there's no light, no fresh air, nothing in from the outside. Those satisfied with their own condition are the ones who are condemned to remain in it. They can see physically, but Jesus says spiritually you are blind. So then we come into chapter 10 and I'm going to hold it there. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.